Ron. All right, good morning. It is, it's exciting to be together this morning. And this is our last Sunday requiring masks and social distancing throughout the entire building. And because of that, it's, it's uniquely exciting and special and different. You know, next Sunday, it's going to be the first time in over 15 months that we will have gathered unrestricted here in the auditorium. And that's a big change, and, and it feels pretty sudden in some ways. And along with that big change comes, comes some excitement and also some discomfort, but certainly some hope as well. And, and that's just how change seems to go, isn't it? You know, last week, Jeremy spoke a blessing to our high school graduates. Those folks have some big changes coming their way. They're just entering into an entirely different season of life. They're, um, for many of them, moving away from home and being away from their family unit for the first time ever. And a lot of new things happen as, as you transition out of high school and into the next season of life. And in our work with college students, change just seems to come with the territory. You know, we have a lot of those students who are transitioning out of high school, and it seems like just when they start to kind of find their way and settle in, it's time to start thinking about what happens after college, and they're thinking about grad school or their first careers. Maybe they are in the middle of their college years. They're changing majors. They're letting go of what they've set their efforts and dreams to for years, and they're setting off in new directions. And change permeates all seasons of life, doesn't it? Life is just full of changes. We change careers, we change relationships, we change in, in uh, adding children to families, we, we lose people that we love. The places where we live change, the people whom we live with change, and, and the things that we're able to do with the passing of time, those change as well. And there is always opportunity for new beginnings with the changes that life throws our way, regardless of whether we choose it. There's always opportunity for new beginnings. And that's what I want for us to spend some time thinking about this morning, the new beginnings that that God offers us. And Scripture, of course, has a lot of important things to say that help us to navigate transition and change well. And I've recently come across a spot in Scripture that has some especially important things to say on the topic of change. And I can confidently say this is only by the Spirit's guidance Um, that I've come across this place in Scripture. We're talking through Haggai this morning, which is a fairly obscure book in the Old Testament. And how I came across it this spring semester was with our college guys Bible study. Every semester, we get together and we sit with each other and we just decide what we're going to study together for that semester. And (laughs) I don't know how we got there. But this semester, we decided to read through the minor prophets together. Hosea, all the way through Malachi, baby. And it was awesome. I've never seen college guys show the, this level of ambition and buy-in to a, a Bible study in, in my time here with campus ministry. It was just great. And Haggai was one of our favorites. Not just because it's so short, but... I mean, really, it's, it's something of a hidden gem. Where we pick up in Haggai, the remnant of God's people has come out of 70 years of exile in Babylon, and they're struggling to rebuild Jerusalem, which is their 
holy city that has been destroyed. And God speaks through Haggai to offer some very important words about navigating this especially challenging new beginning. And these are words that offer all of us guidance, comfort, and hope in times of change. And so this morning, we're going to do a quick little Bible study of the book of Haggai. And I think what you'll find is that God's words here are just as important today as they were 2,500 years ago. And through Haggai, God speaks four main messages to his people. So we're going to walk through each of those. As we pick up in the beginning of Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 2, it reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. That's the first word that God speaks to his people. And a lot of the background plot here, it can be found in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. But the timeline and the specific sequence of events, they're a little tricky to work out, mostly because Ezra's account isn't actually chronological. But what's clear is that the Israelites' initial efforts at rebuilding, they stalled out because of outside resistance. The people around them, their, their regional neighbors, did not want them to rebuild, and they made it really difficult. <clears throat> Before the difficulty came, as the Persian Empire came into rule, and the Babylonian Empire crumbled. King Cyrus gave the Jews the all-clear to go home and rebuild, and that was around the year 538 B.C. But it's not until about 522 B.C., during the reign of King Darius, that God commissions Haggai to spur this remnant population to action. So that's about 16 years or so of waiting, 16 years of struggle, 16 years of neglect, And we're not given a detailed picture of the roadblocks that the Hebrew remnant faced throughout those years. But here at the point where Haggai picks up, we can see that they have been able to start rebuilding. They just haven't resumed building God's house. And that's the problem. So God raises a question for them to consider. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, my house, lies in ruins? And as we look at this and we think about this, we should ask ourselves, doesn't it feel like the underlying thought here is one we all need to keep in mind in times of transition and new beginnings? When our circumstances change in significant ways and we take on new priorities, it's just so easy to to compartmentalize our faith and put God on the back burner as if our life with him falls into the category of something that can be put on hold. And there's more. There's more to this feeling than just, I don't have time to participate in church activities, or I don't have time to read my Bible. It's a lot more comparable to when we start to become absent, absent with our spouses, absent with our families, absent with our our closest friends. In times of change, when our priorities shift along with that, there, there are just things that we neglect. We can neglect the, the things that we truly do treasure in our lives when our circumstances shift. And I don't, I don't want to say this the wrong way, because it's, it's a fact of life that there are certain amounts of busyness and hard work that may be unavoidable 
for any of us. But that's not what we're talking about here, and that's not the condition over which God uses Haggai to call out the Israelites here. The issue at its root is desire and ultimately faith. God's question, and we all face this question, is will you trust me? Will you remain faithful to me enough to keep leaning in with me even when times are hard, even when resources are thin, when demands are high, when you feel out of your depth? Kind of speaking to this this experience of life, Dallas Willard writes, as long as our desires are paramount in our lives, we cannot have faith in God. And what we see here with the Israelites as they're struggling to rebuild and they're focusing on the things that they feel they need to build is that desire can be concealed easily. We wouldn't necessarily feel that desire was the problem if we were in their shoes. You know, building homes for themselves was a necessity. I mean, couldn't they say that they were doing what they had to do? Fear could have also been a driving factor, given all the outside pressure that they were facing from the people around them. And for the men, especially in that culture, there was probably a strong sense of pressure and obligation to provide, to protect. And there's a lot that we could say There's a lot we could say here about it. Different reasons they might feel they were doing what they must. And I don't want to get too lost in the weeds trying to define exactly where faith is no longer a driving point in our actions. But it's something we need to be mindful of. You know, there's always room to grow. And I believe that God is much more interested in our growing with him than he is with our being on the right side of a line, specifically. What's clear here, here's what's clear. The Israelites' actions strayed out of the realm of covenant faithfulness, and they fell squarely into the realm of self-preservation. That's something we can all relate to, and we need to be able to show a lot of grace and understanding to these folks. But at the end of the day, the issue at hand is whether we pursue having our wants and needs met on our own terms. And in this case, with the Israelites, meeting their wants and needs on their own terms meant neglecting God's terms that his house be rebuilt. And it was important. It was so important for the temple to be rebuilt. It was of greatest importance because God's temple stood as a constant reminder of God's presence with his people and his people's need for him. We always have to remember, we have a God who delights in meeting our needs, if only we would look to him to do it. And the more I work to meet my needs on my terms, the more I convince myself of how little I need God. So God basically asks the question here, how's that going for you? And we read on in in chapter 1, verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. We read that and we just think, how, how real does this sound to us? How can, we, how can we relate to this? You know, you feel like you're working your tail off, but you just can't seem to get ahead. You feel like no matter what you do, you just can't catch a break. Maybe you feel like you're doing pretty well for yourself, but... For some reason, it's just not satisfying. 
And it just feels like you're missing something. And God speaks into that moment in our lives and says, consider your ways. You see, the relationship that God's speaking to here and everything that comes with it, it's not transactional. It's not God saying, obey, and I will give you your richest desires. It's something different. It's not transactional. It's covenantal. It's kingdom living, which is not income and outcome based. It's the type of living out of which David could say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Another way you could read that is, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Because God faithfully provides for those who put their trust in him. And one of the primary ways God provides for us is through the people around us who also trust in him. And that tells us another important thing about God's temple, because the temple stood as a constant reminder of God's presence with his people and the people's need for God. And so it showed in their shared life together, to which God's house was central. It helped them to remember that they were God's people together. They needed that. They were missing that, because when everyone is looking out for themselves, no one is looking out for each other. So they were missing this critical element of the life that God desired for them to have. And speaking to this truth, Skyjatani says, when we come to see that our Heavenly Father will take care of us, we will be released from our captivity to self-centeredness and begin to recognize and meet the needs of others. Everybody's looking out for themselves. And God's asking, how's that going for you? Speaking further to this, Timothy Keller writes, Every Christian should be able to identify with conviction and satisfaction the ways in which his or her work participates with God in his creativity and cultivation. I think that's, that's just a great insight. And, and you need to note here, we need to note here, Keller doesn't say that certain types of work participate with God in his creativity and cultivation. Now, he says we need to consider our ways in the work that we have. We need to consider our ways in the work that we have that we might join the Lord in blessing and enjoying his creation. We have to be mindful of ways that, that God wants to work through the work that we have. Because God is big, and he works throughout his creation. <clears throat> and joining God, joining God in his creative, redeeming work, that's exactly what he wants of us. Moving on to verse 13 in chapter 1, we read, After the people decide to obey and fear the Lord. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And that's the second message that that God speaks to his people. I am with you. And it's important to note that God waits to say this. And his waiting, it's, it's just significant because he waits until they choose to look to him once again. Dallas Willard writes about this, this truth, the freedom from the frantic desire to have, which is what, that's what the Israelites were plagued by, this frantic desire to have. The freedom from that is grounded in God's promise to never leave us. The only caveat is that God's promise is made to those who trust him, who desire to be with him and be about his business. So to those 
who desired to be with him and be about his business, who chose to trust him, God said, I am with you. I want to read a a little information that that comes again from the book of Ezra that, that shows us some stuff that's going on behind the scenes as all this is happening. God has called his people to consider their ways to start building his house and they, they say yes, they obey him, they fear him. Here's something that God did that they had no control over. And this is a beautiful example to me of what God can do for the people with whom he is, the people he's with. <clears throat> so this, this is a rather long passage. And I ask you to just bear with me and read along. But pay attention to how abundantly God clears the way for his people's success here. This is from Ezra, um, chapter 6, I believe. Yes. Then Darius the king made a decree, and a search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Watch this, guys. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem, and brought back to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tathani, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazane, and your associates and governors who are in the province, these are the people who are making life for the Israelites difficult. And Darius says to them, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil... As the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day, without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. We wouldn't be doing the minor prophets right if we didn't have a good threat regarding dung. (laughs) May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. And we see, then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. <laughs> wow. This, this is just an incredible example of God blowing the door open for the flourishing 
of his people. And his action was predicated by their faithfulness. We've got to recognize that. We also need to recognize that things don't always work out this perfectly, right? This is pretty amazing. But smaller examples are just as representative of God's faithfulness. God might open a door for a meaningful conversation with a friend or a coworker. God might send someone your way to help bear your heavy load. God might create space for you to stop and just sit with him for 20 minutes when you need it most. There are countless limitless ways that that God can step into our lives and provide what we can't provide for ourselves. And our day-to-day awareness of God's presence gives us the faith that we need to trust him in times of greater change like this. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, we can have as much of God as we will take. What's amazing is God doesn't just stop and working out our external circumstances that we can't control. He's also at work within us. He's redeeming our attitudes, our actions, and our identity through his presence. We see in in verse 14 here, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. He stirred up their spirits. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of God, their hosts. The Lord of hosts, their God. He's at work in our outside circumstances, and he's at work within us. And we can trust that for whatever endeavors we have in front of us, we can trust God to stir up our spirit if only we'd look to him obediently and find strength in his presence. As we read on into chapter 2, the next message from the Lord comes. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it now as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And that's the next word from the Lord, to be strong. What we, what we see in Ezra's account during the initial attempt to rebuild the temple, um, this comes from Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of their fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Some wept because they knew what had been, and they knew what was paled in comparison. And so we ask, why do we need the encouragement to be strong in times of change? Well, it's because we hold on too tightly to what has been, and we have great anxiety about what will be. So God's call to be strong, it seems to come up most often, not only in times of challenge, but in times of change such as this. And maybe the greatest example we can think of is Joshua. Um, Joshua, who was famously told, this is a verse we're really familiar with from Joshua 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We, we claim these words in so many different circumstances, 
The truth is they're spoken specifically to Joshua time and time again, leading up to his taking over the leadership of Israel. And so we ask, why, why was that word so important for Joshua specifically? Well, it was, it was important for Joshua specifically because he was responsible for leading the way through major change. <laughs> the task in front of him was huge to lead the Israelites into the promised land. <clears throat> but the shoes that he had to fill, well, they were huge er. Joshua had to fill in the shoes of Moses. Moses, who was not just his boss, but Moses was one of the all-time greats, right? Moses was the guy who had led Israel like no one before him ever had. And really, we know on this side of history, he was the guy who had led Israel like no one after him ever would. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain before Peter, James, and John, who was with Jesus there? It was Elijah and Moses, I mean, the Israelites' entire law was named after this guy. That's the guy that Joshua had to follow. And so he's given the charge to be strong. You know, I remember a time several years back, uh, Danielle and I, we were having lunch with a few folks. One of them was an assistant superintendent for a school district that happened to have a powerhouse football program. And he was telling us, about their coaching situation because they had a coach who had just retired a couple of years before and the guy was a legend, an absolute legend. Um, and it was really difficult to bring in the next coach. And, and in that conversation, he said something, a line I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, you don't want to be the guy who follows the guy. <laughs> what he didn't know at the time um, was that we were in conversations about my stepping into a campus ministry role that had been filled for decades by Kevin Wooten. Uh, my feet have never felt smaller. <laughs> we need God's encouragement to be strong when we find ourselves asking, who am I? Who am I to do this? Who am I to lead this family? Who am I to take on this task? I just don't feel like I can do it. <clears throat> We need the encouragement to be strong in those times. And the entire basis for God's call to strength is this. We see it in this, in this word to Joshua. Why is Joshua told to find strength? Because God is with him. It's God's faithfulness to be with his people that gives us strength. A.W. Tozer writes about this. Discouragement, which is what a lot of the Israelites were experiencing. Discouragement is based on an erroneous belief. The error is simply that you think you are alone when actually you are not. This is true for those of us in Christ. We can't forget it. God says, I am with you, and that is more than enough. And to that point, God offers his people the reminder and encouragement that they can move forward with strength and hope because he is with them. We see in verse 4, picking up here, God says to the remnant, Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. He says, Work, for I am with you. And that that is the basis of our strength, as, as we see in this quote from Rosaria Butterfield. There is something deeply deceptive about praying that God would give me only what I need to be strong in myself. 
The strength that the gospel promises is the strength found only in continued dependence upon Christ. The people here needed continued dependence upon the Lord through his presence. We need to remember our God is the one whose strength is made perfect through our weakness. And God points all the way back here to the Exodus to remind his people that his faithfulness precedes the better past they remember and supersedes today's disappointment. God's just bigger. We see here in verse 9 the, the future that he, he, he points out to them. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This just this points us to a truth that is so good to know about our Lord, which is that he saves the best for last, and we can trust him in that. So as we read on um, in chapter 2, verse 11, God teaches a little lesson um, leading into this last word. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. And that's, that's the last word that we're going to look at. God says, consider from this day onward. From this lesson um, that, that God poses to the priest, we, we see a concept at work. As one commentator puts it, holiness is contagious. Or sorry, holiness is not contagious, but corruption is. If they carry holy meat in their garment and it touches bread or stew or any number of other things, those things do not become holy. But if they are unclean and touch those things, those things become unclean. Holiness is not contagious, but corruption is. And he says, so is it with this people. And so the question is, does it have to be like this? That's how it is with this people. But does it have to be like this? And God's message to consider from this day onward gives us the sense that things don't have to be this way and things very well may not continue to be this way. Shedding a little light on what's at work here, Tozer says, just like Israel, I need to remember that God is not trying to glorify me. Rather, he wants to glorify himself through my life. This comes only by completely surrendering my heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where sin reigns, where sin reigns, corruption is contagious and rampant. But where God reigns, wholeness and holiness abound. And we see here that God seeks a different kind of surrender than what we're used to. Because God doesn't secure our surrender 
through his forcefulness. He secures it through his faithfulness. And that's because God is in the business of winning hearts. That's who he is. Let's, let's read a little further into this passage. There's something here that is just beautiful to me. He says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. I didn't necessarily read them with each message, but throughout this book of Haggai, the dates are given for each message that God delivers. Here's what's cool. His first message came on the first day of the sixth month. He said, consider your ways. The people started obeying and fearing him and building his temple. He declared his presence with them. He, He encouraged them to be strong. And here we pick up in the ninth month, on the 24th day, almost four months later. And it's not until then that God issues this call to holiness. (laughs) Praise be to God that he is gracious and merciful enough to walk with us and strengthen us with his presence even as we build his house with unclean hands. Praise be to God that he would use the likes of us to serve in his kingdom, and he calls us holy, royal, chosen, and beloved. Rosaria Butterfield writes, we never know the treacherous path that others take to arrive in the pew that we share Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And this speaks to a a truth of our our life, that we all come before the Lord out of exile, from fear, from self-preservation. We all come with unclean hands. But God doesn't expect us to fully surrender to him from the very beginning. And that's because God is comfortable letting us fall in love with him first. God's playing the long game, and that's good news for us, friends. But he desires for us to have and to know the fruitfulness that comes with our full surrender to him. It's like Jesus saving the woman caught in adultery, then asking her, Woman, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. God can wait on us, but he wants us to come on to holiness. Building the temple here, it hasn't produced fruit, but covenant faithfulness will. And as Jesus says, the one who hears and accepts God's word will bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So God says, consider from this day onward. Just wait and see. You know, with God, the way that we handle change, it's, it's just very different from the way that we handle change without God because those who are with God are anchored in something that is unchanging. And we need that because the circumstances of our lives change. Relationships change. Work changes. Living situations change. The world changes. But God does not change. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, our creator and king, the Alpha and Omega, is the only source 
of stability that can withstand and transcend the changes that life throws our way. And in times of change, God calls us to consider our ways, consider the fruitfulness of our desires. He stirs us and strengthens us through his presence, and he invites us to lean in even more, and he will not disappoint I want to finish with this passage from Ephesians 2. It's one that's popped up multiple times here recently with our church family. Barrett preached through it recently. Um, We also worked through it in our Wednesday night adult class just this past week. But as we spent this morning watching the Hebrew remnant start the process of rebuilding God's temple, this just seemed like the only appropriate place to end. Because in Christ, God has made the purpose and value of his temple clearer than ever before. So we read, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And in this passage, let me just offer one closing thought. Paul lays out two coexisting realities that can only be simultaneously true in the light of God's glory and power. On one hand, we are members of God's household together. He's redeemed us, he's restored us, and we live together in his temple, canopied by his glory. At the same time, we, not, not me, not you, not Southside, we, God's universal church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We live in him, and he lives in us. And that is a kingdom that can't be shaken. And change is a lot more tolerable when we have God's holy presence as a constant. If you feel God calling you to consider your ways and you want to respond to that call in obedience, if you want to take on Christ in baptism, if if you just want to lean in more with the Lord, we want to walk with you in that. We invite you. We we invite you (laughs) to include us in that walk this morning. Um, But I also just invite us all to continue in this time of worship and adoration of our glorious Lord.